0: The sermon we're going to hear today comes from the book of 1st Thessalonians. 1st Thessalonians chapter 5. It's right before 2nd Thessalonians. It's the 13th book of the New Testament. 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 12 through 22. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from everything form of evil this is the word of the lord
1: all right so as i alluded to in my prayer just then uh at the end of this week the the gibsons and grace jacobs and i will accompany a slew of our young people to camp impact in new hampshire and it's it's a it's a crazy week that's putting it as mildly as i know how it's absolutely bonkers so Please uh, pray for us, especially us leaders. Um, but you know, really, the, the craziness starts even before we leave. And, and you young people know that when you're going to be, be gone for a week, you know, when you're getting ready to head out the door and you're scurrying around the house trying to collect all these l- items that you're going to need at the last minute, you know that your mom also is shouting all of these instructions at you. Like, don't forget your toothbrush. You know, be safe. Listen to your leaders. Do you have your Bible? Mind your manners. Don't take a, too long a shower. You have to say that if you've got teenage girls. <laughs> Make sure you take showers. You have to say that if you have teenage boys. <laughs> have fun. What's happening is that your mom knows that her time with you is short. It's quickly fleeting. And so as you're headed out the door, she's giving you a flurry of rapid fire instructions. You know, if there was more time, she would certainly give you more instructions and perhaps she would explain her instructions in more detail. But as it is, there's only time for like a machine gun spray of commands Well, we encounter a very similar thing as uh, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians is Drawing to a close and can you believe that that we're already at the end of first Thessalonians? Um, It's it's quite a difference after studying Genesis for a couple years and acts for a couple years we're almost at the end of this first letter and as we come to chapter 5 verse 12 Paul's wrapping up and he knows that he doesn't have much parchment left but he has so much to say. He's got, this is a brand new church plant for goodness sake. There's so many wonderful things that are going on with them so, but so many, also so many problems and possible issues. So what do you say when you're down to your last paragraph? Well, Paul does what your mom does. And he gives an explosion of exhortations. Now, what is, the, what is your typical response to your, your mom's machine gun instructions? Well, first of all, we're not really listening. Sorry, moms, I, I hate to break that to you, but we're not really listening. Yes, we hear you, but we're not listening. You know, we're frantically looking for our AirPods or whatever. And then another response is to say, I know, mom, I know. And I want to just suggest to you that we are in danger of having the same kind of responses when we read Paul's rapid fire exhortations in this chapter. They're so short, they're coming at us so fast that we can hear them without ever really listening to them. And also, they're so basic that we want to just say, even if it's just internally, I know, Paul. I know. Do good. Rejoice. Pray. I get it. I get it. You taught me these things when I was a one-week-old Christian. Now, those kinds of responses are very dangerous, very dangerous. They, they all but guarantee that we're going to miss learning the lesson. In this, in this case, these exhortations to faithfulness, uh, that, that's what we're calling them. They're exhortations to faithfulness. And that means that if they just fly by us without making any kind of an impact, then our faith is going to suffer. We're not actually going to live in the light of, of God's will. And then as a result of that, people in our lives are going to suffer. You know, when a, mom's, when a mom's parting instruction to her 13-year-old boy is, make sure you wear deodorant. I don't know if any of you have ever said that to your young boys. But when that falls on deaf ears, other people suffer. And the same thing happens when we overlook these biblical commands because they're just too basic or we think that we know. Other people really suffer. So I think it'd be good if we can just look at verses 12 to 22 again and slow it down a bit. You know, maybe listen to it at 0.5 speed. So that we can just really hear these commands and not just hear them but to listen to understand them and then by god's grace and by his holy spirit to put them into practice we're going to organize these exhortations to faithfulness under five categories we're going to have five exhortations five p's that they are in reference to and i'll just Let you know right off the bat here. I I may have bitten off more than we can chew today. I know that shocks you that I might do something like that. But um, we'll just take we'll take as many as time will allow and I'll be careful not to exasperate you in this hot sanctuary. So we'll just see how we go. It's very likely that we uh, we might have to pick this up again in a few weeks but we'll see how we do we have um, five categories of exhortations and the first one is concerning peace we've got exhortations here especially in verses 12 and 13 that concern peace now unless you've got your head completely buried in the sand you'll no doubt have noticed that this world is in turmoil there is no peace in our world. From, from Russia to Rochester, you know, people are at war with one another. Folks are shooting police. They're stabbing at gubernatorial candidates. And that says nothing. We're not even talking about, you know, the vicious words that are constantly exchanged between warring factions. Not just on social media anymore, but in, in real life. Reckless words that that are like sword thrusts to use the language of of Proverbs. You you see that you're confronted with this even when you uh, go to the grocery store and, and someone looks at you funny or or you accidentally you know bump them or something. It's it's war. It escalates very quickly. And then I suppose you've noticed that churches are not always the places of peace that they're supposed to be. They're not always the palace beautiful that has a room called peace. There's always the the possibility and sadly, sometimes the reality, that the body of Christ is divided into factions. You know, sin sin goes unresolved. Um, bitterness creeps in; it begins to fester, and before long, you've got a congregation that's in a sort of cold war with each other, if not open hostility and fighting. Now, the church desperately needs the exhortation that comes at the end of verse thirteen. Paul says, Be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, peace can be imperiled in a lot of different areas of our life together. But it's clear from the context in Thessalonica that the source of strife was between the the believers and the leaders in their church. And by leaders, I mean their elders. They're deacons. So even though this is a a very young church plant, this is a a really, really new church, it's evident that right from the get-go, Paul and Timothy would have set men in place to serve and to lead. And from what we gather in the book of Acts, you can read this in Acts chapter 17 and following, just kind of follow along where it talks about Thessalonica it's reasonable to conclude that men like Jason, who was a central figure there initially, and then uh, men like Aristarchus and Secundus, who we read about, came later from Thessalonica. It's very clear, at least to me, that these were leaders in the church there in Thessalonica. And it's interesting, isn't it, that even though they're a young church, that it's a, it's a huge priority for the Apostles to establish godly leadership in those brand new congregations. And then I don't think it's too much of a stretch to imagine that other believers, you know, the congregation might have had an issue with that. After all, weren't they all basically new converts? What, what made these guys so special that, that they're put in leadership positions? And, and, and when they would rebuke or exhort or whatever, those on the receiving end might think, who, whoa, dude, who gave you the right to tell me what I can and can't do? Who died and made you the boss of me? How can you teach me when I've been in the faith longer than you? In, in that, into that kind of a tinderbox, the Apostle Paul gives us exhortations that will make for peace. And here they are. You can look down with me at them. Respect your leaders and esteem them very highly in love. These leaders are described in three ways. First of all, they labor among you. They labor among you. Your, your elders and deacons are people who work very hard for your sakes. These Thessalonian believers were, or these leaders, I should say, in Thessalonica were obviously following the apostolic pattern, which Paul described back in chapter 2, verse 9, when he said, For you remember, brother, our, our labor and our toil, how we worked night and day so that we might not be a burden on any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. That's the apostolic model, hard work, labor, diligent labor, gospel proclamation. And it's clear that these leaders also picked up on that. One of the themes in these letters is the necessity and the goodness of work, hard work. And clearly the leaders in this church are are learning that lesson and not only that but they are excelling as examples of hard work especially the hard work of preaching and teaching the word of god now a second descriptor of church leaders is that they are over you in the lord over you that's positional language that's that's the language of authority I know how that strikes some of you, which is to say, not very well. That, that kind of rubs you the wrong way. There, there's people that, that, that really, really bristle when they hear something like that. There's some of you who refuse to put yourself under any man's spiritual authority. There, there are some of you who say that you have, but you resist it at every turn when it comes to to church membership in general, or when it comes to spiritual authority in particular, there are some of you who say, well, where's that in the Bible? If you're saying that, if you're thinking that, I want you to take a good look at your Bible right now, concentrate on verse 12, and see where it describes leaders as being over you. In the Lord and I'm very well aware of the awkwardness of me having to tell you this just so that you know I I don't take particular delight in this but I feel duty-bound to declare to you the Word of God and I would I would have you notice that it says that leaders are put over you but don't forget that last part it's the most important part They're over you in the Lord. In the Lord. That's that's helpful, I think, for everybody involved. You know, for for church members, it's important for you to know that your being under spiritual leadership of someone else is by design. It's the design of the Lord Jesus Christ who is Lord of the church. And this this is also a helpful reminder to To us leaders. We're not just over, but we ourselves are under. We we labor and we minister under the lordship of Christ. And and we simply serve as his under shepherds. So there's, there's no room here to lord it over those in our charge. Now, a third thing about church leaders from verse 12 is that they. Admonish you they admonish you and that that word means to warn or to advise or to urge earnestly This is one of the responsibilities that the Lord has given to pastors and and elders and in many cases deacons as the case requires to to strongly exhort and, and admonish you in whatever situation that you find yourself. Do you, do you realize, friends, that this is for your good? When, when you're driving down the road and, and you're driving at a pretty good clip and uh, an oncoming car flashes his his lights at you, you know, like high beam, low beam, so that you slow down a bit, and then sure enough, there, there's a cop just around the bend sitting at a speed trap aren't you grateful for that warning i mean that's that's a terrible example let's just say like there there's a cliff there's a cliff coming not a cop and and the the driver or some pedestrian is going like this to you you're going too fast slow down aren't you thankful for that warning When you're speeding headlong into sin and a pastor earnestly urges you to repent and to change directions, shouldn't you be so thankful for the warning? Why is it that, that you embrace the one and resist the other? Now all of these descriptors of the church leader, his, his labor for you, his Christ-assigned authority over you, his counsel to you, these are all reasons why you must respect him. And, and look at the language, folks. It's, it's not respect the office. You know, sometimes when we have a president that we're not so fond of, we, we know what the word of God says, you know, But we we think that we're obeying it when we say, well, I I really respect the office of president. And what that serves to do, you know, to make it more abstract like that, to just talk about the office, really removes the individual person so that you don't really have to respect him. No, this is not what this passage is talking about. You're not following God's will when you simply respect the position called pastor. No, you must respect the man. The the you you must esteem him very highly. And not just esteem him, not even esteem him highly. The text says esteem him very highly. That's esteem to the third degree in in case you're wondering. Esteem these brothers in love. And again, trust me, this is super awkward. But I, I'm just, I'm the messenger here. That, that's the command that comes to you. And I, I wonder, are you doing that? Is it obvious? Not just in the way that you privately think about your pastors and your deacons, but how you publicly speak about them and how you speak to them? Do they know how much you respect and esteem them? And the reason that you must is not just because they're worthy of it, because of their work, although that would be reason enough. The the larger reason is because this is one of the prime pathways to peace in the local church, if you're following Paul's logic here. You know, when church members are filled with resentment and bitterness and suspicion and a general lack of submission towards church leaders, what ensues is total chaos and disunity. On the other hand, when church members respect and esteem their leaders very highly in love, peace ensues. That's what makes for peace. That's not the extent of what makes for peace there's so many other things that Paul will command of us elsewhere but this is certainly the thrust in Thessalonica this is what these brothers and sisters needed to hear and I believe this is what we need to hear as well so those are exhortations concerning peace let's move to a second category And look at some exhortations concerning patience. Focus especially on verse 14. Because in verse 14, we have a cluster of commands that are connected by a common category of congregant. And what's in view here are weak Christians, weak Christians. Once again, there's a group of three different situations that fall under this category. And the first are the idol. I-D-L-E, the idol. These are people that are not following the pattern of the apostles. They're not following the pattern of their spiritual leaders who are laboring and toiling and working hard. These are people who are as I said, not following the apostolic pattern of laboring day and night, who are eager and determined not to be a burden on other people. Instead, these are people that are leaning on their shovels. They they were content to do nothing, you know, to just stand around and collect pogey and depend on the benevolence of the church. And apparently, this, is, this was a big problem in Thessalonica, uh, which is why Paul had to write things like, work with your hands, be dependent on no one. These, these, you, you see that in uh, chapter 4, for example, verses 11 to 12. In his second letter, as we'll see, Lord willing, Paul's going to devote a whole section to dealing with lazy people. And let's just be honest, I, you, you may exclude yourself, you certainly will probably exclude yourself immediately from such a group, but let's just admit that this is a huge problem in our day and age. You know, people have gotten very, very comfortable with, with um, being dependent on government assistance programs. And I'm not talking about people that legitimately Need those. I'm talking about people who do the calculus and they realize why would I give up uh, this check that I'm getting and work if I work I'm actually going to be making less than than the money that I'm getting for free. So that would be stupid. It wouldn't. Sorry, Johnny. It wouldn't be smart to do something like that. And so what you find is that people are just not eager to work. Every single—I'm not exaggerating here. Every single store and restaurant I go into, it, they all say the same thing: "Help wanted." And and maybe you found this, if, especially if you're a young person who even just does the bare minimum, you're you're looked at like a saint by an employer, like you're the best thing that's come down the pike. There, there's a there's a general laziness that characterizes our. Um, society, and that's, hard, that's a hard thing for us Americans to come to, to grips with because it was ne- that, that's never been our reputation, but we're certainly gaining that reputation these days. And I've been around long enough to know that what is true about the general population is, is often also true, unfortunately about the people of God. There are people. In churches, there are professing Christians. There are Christians who are idle. And your responsibility, brothers and sisters, in the face of that, in the face of those people, are to admonish those who are, are idle. Now, notice that that word "admonish" that's the same word that's used in verse 12. And in verse 12, the task of admonishing was the pastors, right? That's part of what makes him worthy of your respect and esteem is because he admonishes. But now notice here in verse 14, the same task is given to the brothers, which is the people of the congregation, the church members. Some of you might be interested to know that the the word for admonish in the original language is neutheteo, from which we get the word neuthetic, as in neuthetic counseling. So let's piece all of this together so that you can see, I hope you can see, that Paul is prompting here in every member ministry. It's not just the elders who, ad, who are admonishing, but all of us are admonishing each other. All of us are involved in counseling. This is a theme that we've been trying to get across for decades here, that, that, that counseling, that admonishment is not just for uh, some professional class of people, but it's what every member of the body is called to do. Now, what, what are we to do with people in the church who are lazy and unemployed and under-engaged? Are we supposed to just kind of like quietly resent them and ignore them? You know, just carry on the work without just knowing that they're hanging around on the sidelines? No, that's not what we're to do. That would be easy to do but the exhortation that comes to us is that we are to admonish such people, that we're to rebuke and warn and exhort and strongly urge. We're to counsel them into the way of faithfulness. Now, a second group that Paul has in mind are folks who are faint-hearted, faint-hearted. And you may know exactly the kind of christian that the apostle is talking about maybe you are this kind of a christian but it, but if it's not immediately apparent to you let me just break break down the word a little bit you know the heart in the biblical conception is the the very center of our being it's the it's the seat of our emotions our will our thinking our feeling our believing it's where, it's where faith is, is exercised. When a person's heart faints, well, uh, let me put it this way. If you need like a, a picture, if you do better with pictures, you know, think about the cowardly lion from The Wizard of Oz. Um, think about, if you don't want to think about that guy, think about an old-timey woman, you know, who, who just can't bear to hear the slightest bad news or she'll get the vapors. And she'll get, go all woozy. And she needs to fall back on a fainting couch. I guess, I guess that was a big problem back in the day. So big that they even needed like a special piece of furniture in the house to catch all of these faint-hearted ladies. I don't know. Some of you were around those days. Well, it turns out that this is a, a big problem among Christians as well. There, there are those who often, and it seems like at the drop of a hat, succumb to anxiousness and discouragement. You know, one, one moment they seem strong and, and full of faith, but then along comes a trial or a conflict or, or a pernicious thought, and then their hearts faint within them, and they, they get woozy, spiritually speaking. What are we called to do with such people? Well, let's just continue our analogies. What what would happen when the woman would get the vapors and collapse? Well, conveniently, as I say, there'd be a fainting couch right underneath her. It, or, or if she was going to miss it, you know, her friends would just kind of gently nudge her in the direction of the fainting couch so that she doesn't, you know, hit her head on the Victrola and get a concussion, you know. And then all, what else would happen? All of her friends would gather around her and they'd stoop down and they'd all pull out their fans and, and wave their fans in her face. That sounds pretty good right about now, doesn't it? What, what would Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Scarecrow do when the lion gave in to his, his weakness and his fear? What did the Wizard of Oz do for him? He gave him a, a medal of courage and reminded him of all of the reasons he, he had for being brave. Now along these same lines, and not identical lines obviously, but. Paul is commanding us, encourage the faint-hearted. Don't, don't scold them. Be, be that soft couch that they can land on. You know, don't, don't break the bruised reed or snuff out the smoldering wick. If the wick's smoldering, you know, pull out your fan and fan it into flame. So that so that faith once again burns brightly in your friend's heart, you know. To encourage someone is to is to put courage in them. That's really what the word means. End courage is to pump courage into people. Remind them of all of the reasons they have. Not like the Wizard of Oz. Not all of the. You don't tell the person all of the in inner resources that they have and why they actually are deep down inside brave and strong. No, remind them of all of the reasons that they have be, that are external to them because of the gospel. Why all of the remind them why all of the promises will come to fruition. That's what we're called to do. Encouragement, I hope you've recognized this is it's one of the main themes of this letter. Because that's the need of the hour. Not just then, but now. This is not the first time we've been exhorted to encourage one another. Um, You can just look even at the previous verse to our passage today, 5.11, 4.18, at the end of the previous chapter. And in those places, Paul, thankfully, he told us how we ought to encourage one another. It's one thing to say you ought to be encouraging one another. It's, it's the next thing and the helpful thing to actually tell us how we can do that. And Paul there, you'll recall, says, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another. You want to know how to do it? Do it with the word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which a passage that you know very well, I'm sure. It says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. If you'll allow me to to add, this is a terrible thing to do, but I think Paul would probably say it's okay. To encourage training and righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, we're not just commanded to encourage people, but we've been given the only sufficient source of strength that they need. We've been given scripture, the very word of God. And then thirdly, just generally, there are those who are weak. You probably don't need me to to define what weak means or what weakness looks like. But, but I would have you just remember that all these the- believers here that Paul's writing to, they're in Thessalonica, those, these are all people that have just recently been radically converted. Okay, They're coming out of lifestyles and patterns of living that, that are very easy for them to slip back into. these are people that are just beginning to learn the correct doctrine after decades, maybe, of being indoctrinated by their culture, by the world. And right away, they're experiencing all kinds of persecution, not just from secular society, but from their former friends, from their very family members. And you can hardly, just given that context, you can hardly blame these believers for getting a little weak in the knees right you you can understand even though it doesn't give them a pass you can understand why they would succumb to their weak flesh or you, you could be sympathetic if they are maybe beginning to wonder if they've made a big mistake in following this Jesus and I hope you realize at this point that I'm not just describing baby Christians in the first century. I could be saying these same kinds of things about longstanding believers in the 21st century. Weakness. It's prevalent. And what, what should we do for weak brothers and sisters? The word of God says, help them. Come alongside them. Hold their hands. Lead them in paths of righteousness. Give them the tools that they need to fight temptation and to withstand persecution. Stand with them in the face of temptation and persecution. Be an example. Point them to other examples. Point them to the greatest example, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a fourth exhortation in verse 14, which is given in reference to these three that we've talked about. These are all exhortations concerning patience. In all of these cases, the need of the hour is for us to be long-suffering, if we're going to admonish the idol, if we're going to encourage the faint-hearted, if we're going to help the weak, what we're going to need not is not just a little patience, but a lot of patience. Think about it. How do you, how do you naturally feel when you're dealing with such people? Well, I don't I don't know about you, but it, it's very easy for me to despise the idol. I mean, I it's hard for me to respect that at all. the The faint-hearted and the the weak, they they just wear me out. I I come away from those confrontation those those uh, encounters just totally drained in my spirit. We naturally resist the lazy. We recoil and we avoid the easily discouraged. We get frustrated with the weak. We say things like. They ought to know this stuff by now. How many times do I have to tell them the same thing? I've pointed to this same scripture time and time again. How is it that that person is weaker now than they were a week ago? I thought we had made some serious progress here. You know, I'm trying to be gentle and soft, but what what that person really needs is a smack across the face. You know, just snap out of it. I don't know if I'm just describing myself or if you can maybe relate to that. Well, let's be rebuked by just considering the example of Jesus. The example of Jesus with his disciples. You know, I I get frustrated with the disciples as I'm reading scripture. I want to take all 12 of them and smack them across the face. You know, you think about... Something like the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which is amazing. You'd think that would make a lasting impression on all who experienced it. Well, it seems very clear from scripture that this happened not just once, but maybe twice, and maybe more. That multiple thousands of people were fed in a wilderness, in a remote location by the miraculous power of Jesus. And, and in subsequent times, when that scenario uh, creeps up again, when, you know, the times it's getting close to supper time and there's still a vast amount of people and there's nowhere to go for food, the disciples are getting all frantic and they're like, uh, Jesus, what are we going to do? Let's, let's tell these people to get out of here. You know, like, put a call it quits. And you think, guys, how, don't you remember? That may have only been like a week ago or six months ago. You remember that Jesus did solve this problem spectacularly. Why would you ever doubt again? And yet they did. And how was Jesus? Just so patient, so, so kind, so long-suffering. And then think about, forget the disciples, okay? Think about yourself. How patient is the Lord Jesus Christ with you? Forgetting his promises as you do every day. Falling back into the same old sin over and over and over again. Having to be reminded of the same old things, basic Christianity. Isn't, isn't God so patient with us? Friends, with the comfort that you have received, comfort one another. With the unbelievable patience that you have been shown, that I've been shown, let us be patient with them all for, for the sake of Christ. Now, speaking of weakness, uh, I know you're weak right now. You're hot. You're hungry. So I'm not going to exasperate you by trying to rush to finish this passage. I think maybe you'll be pleased to know. So we'll have to just uh, come back to this passage. I don't, I don't apologize for going slow. Um, that's fine. We'll just come back to it. Unfortunately, it's going to be uh, about four weeks from now. Okay, so um, if you're taking notes in your journal or whatever, leave a bunch of blank spaces, and then you'll, you'll want to be able to start some new notes next week when Pastor Dick comes to preach um, from the book of Job. And then uh, the week after, as uh, Pastor Matt come, uh, actually, no, sorry, a, a dear friend of ours, Elder Keith Ryu from the Elm... Elmira Community Church. Uh, He's going to come and minister to us as we're coming back the day before from camp, and then Pastor Matt the week after that. So uh, lots of wonderful things that the Lord has in store for us, but let's, brothers and sisters, let's, let's go and put these things into practice by the grace of God and by the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen.